You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and Happy New Year. It's 2024, you guys. I'm so excited about that, but that doesn't mean that we've taken a break from true crime because this holiday sadness, it just keeps piling up. So today we'll start with Savannah Soto, and this case was sent to me by so many listeners wanting me to cover her death. And before you guys even sent it to me, I was actually kind of following it. It kind of broke all around Christmas Day, and there was little bits and pieces that were funneling out through the news, and I was just waiting to see what investigators would uncover. And I feel like now we have at least some information to tell you a more complete story, not a totally complete story, but there's more information out there. All right, one thing's for sure. We definitely don't have the answer to who murdered her and her unborn child and her boyfriend over the Christmas holiday. So let's start on that Friday before Christmas. That's the 22nd. And 18-year-old Savannah Soto is very, very pregnant with her soon-to-be-born son, Fabian. See, on that Friday, Savannah is seen at her apartment complex in Leon Valley. That's a suburb on the northwestern side of San Antonio. And Savannah's family said they spoke to her that day. They were discussing the exciting Saturday that was to come. Because on the 23rd, that Saturday, Savannah was scheduled to be induced at a local hospital at 6.30 p.m. It was baby time. But on the morning of that Saturday, and then into the afternoon, when her mother tried to reach Savannah via her cell phone multiple times, no one answered. And Savannah's mother, Gloria Cordova, she became very concerned. But she decided to just head to the hospital, meet Savannah there, and make sure everything was okay. But Savannah was a no-show. Gloria called the police and reported that Savannah hadn't arrived at the hospital. But police told Gloria, that doesn't mean she's in danger. And of course, adults can change their plans, even if that includes not showing up for your induction appointment. But for Gloria, it was just too weird. Savannah was overdue, and according to Gloria, she was completely ready for her baby boy she had named Fabian to arrive. And the nursery was set up. The apartment was clean and tidy. Conversations between the two had been about the excitement and the new start that a baby would bring. Because there had been some tumultuous events for the family. Firstly, Savannah's brother Ethan had been shot and killed in May of 2022, this over revenge for an apparent robbery. Now, the Daily Mail reported that her brother, 15-year-old Ethan Soto, was accused of stealing THC cartridges from 17-year-old Victor Rivas. And in order to get his revenge, court documents say Victor shot and killed Ethan. 
Now, Victor was arrested for that murder in August of 2022. And here's how the whole story goes. All of this is alleged, by the way. So keep that at the forefront as I'm telling you the story. Ethan stole those THC cartridges from Victor. And Victor is angry. He's so angry that he drives by Ethan's family home and fires at least one shot. Now, Ethan was not injured in that exchange between the two, but Victor is still angry. Now, Gloria decides that she might be able to calm the situation between the two teen boys. So she met up with Victor to pay for the cartridges and kind of calm the situation down. But Victor says that never happened. But Gloria insists that it did happen. So whichever is accurate... Victor is still angry, and he wants to settle the score. So he reaches out to a girl on Instagram, and he asks her to set up a drug deal with Ethan. And he doesn't seem to hide the ball from the girl here. He tells her that he is looking for the person who robbed him and that he was going to catch up with him. Well, the underage girl complied, and she set up the meeting. And that is when police say, Victor ambushed Ethan and shot him multiple times. Ethan was rushed to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead. And understandably, the family grieved. But when a preliminary hearing was held for Victor in October of this year, the anger portion of that grief took over. Apparently, there was some sort of interaction between Victor and Ethan's family in the courtroom. Victor either laughed or he made a gesture towards Ethan's loved ones, And then two men and two teen boys jumped the courtroom railing that was separating the enemies. The four began beating on Victor with the physical portion of the altercation lasting about 30 seconds before law enforcement were able to separate the inmate and the family members. Now, I watched a cell phone recorded video of the melee. And you guys, it's complete chaos. You've got other inmates just trying to avoid being punched. There are people screaming all over the place. Court staff is kind of moving out of the way. They're maybe unclear of what they should do. And during the whole thing, Victor does suffer some minor injuries and the four males are arrested. Okay, all of that was just two months before the nine-month pregnant Savannah and her boyfriend, 22-year-old Matthew Guerra, are now nowhere to be found on the day of Savannah's induction. But if you remember, I said that there had been tumultuous times, a plural, more tumult than the death of Ethan and the courtroom brawl. See, Savannah and Matthew, they have a history of violence. In fact, on Christmas Day of 2022, the two had a physical altercation that left Savannah bruised and beaten. Fox News 4 in San Antonio reported that Matthew was arrested in 2022 for domestic abuse against Savannah. And Matthew's father told News 4 that while Matthew was incarcerated for those domestic abuse charges, that he and Savannah contacted each other via phone, which was a violation of the protection order. But Savannah would always forgive her abuser and begin communicating with him again, despite multiple events being documented where Matthew would physically harm Savannah. And in those events, law enforcement was not called or utilized. And without knowledge of those events, in June of 2023, a judge did grant Matthew probation for his domestic violence charges. And he also permitted Matthew to have contact with Savannah as long as it was not harmful or full of injury. 
but since that probation was granted in June, Matthew again was slapped with additional charges of unlawfully carrying a weapon, as well as evading arrest and reckless driving. Now, his father told News 4 that he knew his son could be violent, but he felt that becoming a father would change that unlawful behavior. He said his son was talking about how he wanted to be a better person. But Gloria, okay, that's Savannah's mother, well, she told News 4 that she repeatedly told Savannah to get out of the relationship. But she said Savannah was hard-headed and she wouldn't listen. Now, all of that tumult brings us to that Saturday evening. Savannah isn't at the hospital. She isn't answering her phone and no one can find Matthew either. Matthew's father even went to his son's apartment and kicked in the door to get inside. When he got in there, he found a lit candle and a fully packed overnight bag that Savannah had readied to take to the hospital. Well, at this point, everyone related to Matthew and Savannah are in stages of panic. But the police tell Matthew's father that no judge is going to grant a request for cell phone data. At that point, the only thing out of the ordinary is two adults who aren't where they said they were going to be. And that situation, despite how you or I feel about it, isn't enough to invade the privacy of everyday citizens. Well, on the next day, okay, this is Christmas Day, that Monday, Savannah's family organized their own search party for her. They also utilized social media, begging for others to help by providing information about where Savannah or Matthew could be. And understandably, with the past that these two share, some finger pointing is happening. Savannah's family was clearly worried that Matthew may have done something to Savannah or that Matthew's, shall we say, unsavory peer group could have actually harmed Savannah. Well, the big break in the missing duo came on Tuesday when Savannah's sister-in-law, Joni, told investigators she received a tip on Facebook about the location of the car that Savannah was seen riding in. Now, the tipster told Joni that the car, which is a Kia Optima, and it was owned by Savannah and Matthew, well, that that car could be found at an apartment complex just three miles northeast of the apartment that Savannah and Matthew shared. Well, when Joni drove to where the car was reportedly said to be, she found a female in the passenger front seat, dead, with an empty baby carrier on her lap. And in the back seat was a male. He was also dead. Both had been shot in the back of the head. Now, of course, the medical examiner had to identify the bodies, but Joni was sure it was Savannah and Matthew. And I know you're wondering about baby Fabian. Well, Savannah was still pregnant when she was shot which meant her unborn baby boy died as well. Now, rumors circulated wildly for the next two days. There was lots of talk about a potential murder-suicide, but investigators are now saying that is very unlikely. They are being what appears to be cautious about exacts because they're waiting for the autopsy and the investigation results. But it's been confirmed that no weapons or cell phones were found in the Kia Optima. Um, Police are saying that the murder-suicide theory is not being reviewed anymore. That this is now a capital murder case. And then, when police released surveillance footage on Thursday, the case became even more perplexing for family and investigators. In the footage, the victim's silver Kia 
pulls into a parking lot area of what seems to be an apartment complex. It's dark in the footage. And the Kia does not have its headlights illuminated. See, when it first pulls in, you can see a little bit of light and almost like a like the driver of the Kia is flashing the headlights and then all of a sudden the headlights turn off. So they're not illuminated for most of the video. Then from the opposite direction, a man driving a Chevy Silverado with a truck bed cover approaches the Kia. Now his headlights are illuminated and the two vehicles park next to each other, their driver's door directly across from each other. Now in the video, the driver of the Chevy gets out of the truck And you guys, he's a big dude. He's wearing a white tank undershirt and what looks to be black pants. And he's got a very large belly. He and the driver of the Kia, well, they talk and the Kia driver gets out and then they maybe do something to the door of the Kia. And that's just speculation on my part and on the investigator's part, because the camera footage is actually from a distance and it's dark And what is going on between the cars is partially hidden, but they do either bend over or kneel down and then they each get back into their respective vehicles and they drive away. Now, investigators have said that they believe neither Savannah nor Matthew appear in the footage. All right. That doesn't mean they aren't in the Kia. They could already be dead in the Kia or they could be alive in the Kia. I've watched the video and you can't see if there are people in the car and the parking lot where the footage was shot. Well, it's just a short distance from where the Kia and the deceased people were found. Now, investigators released the footage in hopes that tips would pour in about the two persons of interest, or in this case, the drivers of the Kia and the Chevy. Investigators also said they're combing through cell phone records and other surveillance footage from different locations. Now, Matthew's father told KENS5 that he knows his son did not hurt Savannah. He said they were inseparable. He then posed this question. Was it a perfect relationship? Matthew's father said, no, it wasn't a perfect relationship, but that Savannah was not a prisoner. She was willingly starting a family with Matthew. And Gloria, remember that Savannah's mother, is desperately seeking answers. She is baffled at why Savannah was in the front of the car and Matthew was in the back. She said it only makes sense that someone other than Matthew or Savannah was in the driver's seat. And then she told KENS5 that Matthew was involved in illegal activity. She feels that whatever led to the murders, that it had to do with Matthew and also the people he associated with. She said that she believes her daughter just happened to be there that the murderers didn't want to kill Savannah, but they had to because she would be a witness to what was going on. Well, on Thursday, the family of Savannah held a vigil for her with about 100 people in attendance. Her grandmother told KSAT that the family should have been celebrating for Savannah and for the birth of her son, Fabian. But instead, they were holding a vigil, mourning their deaths. And there's lots of unanswered questions here. But one thing is for sure, social media is losing its mind over this case. Posts about finding the bodies don't match what is being reported. And then there's shade being thrown all over the place, accusing certain people of nefarious things. And it's become so out of control that Savannah's grandmother is begging for it to stop so that investigators can actually just focus on the hard facts of the case. 
Well, as far as what I've told you today, you guys, I've double and triple checked it. And I have more than one, two, three sources available. So I feel confident about the information we've shared today. And I'll keep watching the case and I'll keep you updated as more information comes in. All right, let's look at this story out of Orin, Utah. Mostly I want to look at it because it's unpredictable and intriguing, and it will have your mind wandering every which way, trying to determine what's actually going on here and what's the truth. All right, first, let's just focus on the history of the property that's involved in this case. Okay, at one point, a beautiful home stood on the over one acre parcel of land in an affluent neighborhood in the college town. And that home belonged to 47-year-old Dr. Joseph Berg, who was an Orem plastic surgeon. He owned his own thriving practice. And all of the pieces are lining up for a blessed life, right? He's educated. He's wealthy. He has a girlfriend, 48-year-old Lucy Schwartz. But all wasn't well in their lives. In November of 2011, Lucy called 911 crying. She was in distress. And when the police broke down the door of the home, they found Lucy in the large walk-in closet. Her hands and wrists were taped together and her mouth was gagged. She had been tied to a dresser located within the closet. Dr. Berg was arrested and charged with a drug and alcohol-fueled assault and kidnapping. But... Just two days after the assault, Lucy denied that the incident was that big of a deal. She said because of her husband's stature in the community, the police were blowing it out of proportion and that the media had embellished the story. Lucy went as far as to beg for the charges to be dropped. She told the police it was basically just a lover's quarrel and that the two intended to marry. She said they were even working with their clergy to resolve some of their relationship issues. Well, law enforcement refused to drop the charges, and Dr. Berg was sentenced to 180 days in the Utah County Jail, with three years probation for the kidnapping and abuse charges. He was also ordered to undergo drug treatment and to take an anger management course. It was kind of a light sentence, but one that was recommended by the prosecutor. Dr. Berg could have served up to 15 years for the charges, but the light recommendation was due to his fairly clear criminal past. And then at the sentencing hearing, Lucy told the judge that the altercation was a low point in their relationship. Dr. Berg's attorney said his downward spiral had started when he became addicted to prescription painkillers following chronic pain from a back injury. And Dr. Berg did admit at the sentencing hearing he was addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs, and he also voluntarily surrendered his medical license. Well, it's this part of the story where law enforcement and the judicial system, they collaborate with the hope that the criminal will realign their life, that the criminal will get back on track and continue down a positive pathway. Well, Dr. Berg did serve his time in the county jail, and he was released. And his fiance, Lucy Schwartz, was still by his side, along with his family members. And the Sunday following his release, and that happened just three days earlier, Lucy and Joseph had dinner with family where he was described as being in good spirits. All seemed to be well. But by Monday afternoon, crime scene tape surrounded the luxury home. When Dr. Berg's father couldn't get a hold of the couple, 
he traveled to the home and found Joseph and Lucy dead, face down on their shared bed. There was no injury, no trauma, but autopsies later discovered that the two had accidentally overdosed on isoflurane. Okay, I was told that's an anesthetic commonly used in surgeries, which would make sense that Dr. Berg would have that availability on hand. So why am I telling you this tragic story from 2012? Well, that property seems to be cursed in some way because here's how the next few years played out. It seems the property made it in the hands of Beverly and Thomas Dixon in 2013. Now, Thomas Dixon made his wealth when he started the company BlendTech, which you might actually be familiar with because Tom had appearances on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, also on The Today Show and The Discovery Channel because he's famous for blending up things like cell phones and marbles and rake handles, showing that his machinery or his blender could blend anything and just keep going. So Tom and Beverly, they clearly have money because this is a very wealthy company. And after they purchased the original property, construction on a monstrous new structure has been stop and go. It's been 10 years and the still uninhabited property ballooned to 27,000 square feet. It had become the size of a commercial building. Inside, there was a pool with a water slide, and that had been completed, as well as a tennis court surrounded by, and what looks like pickleball courts also. And then, where there's the tennis ball and, and pickleball courts, there seems to be three observation decks so you can watch the activities below. And pictures from inside the house show plenty of work still needing to be done to complete the build. But one thing's apparent. This house is enormous. And somewhere in the whole exchange of what part of the Tom Dixon empire would own the home, the ownership made its way into the hands of Tom's son, Tom Dixon Jr. Well, last year, the unfinished home, well, it went up for sale, but it was withdrawn from the market when interest was pretty cool towards purchasing the unfinished home. Then, this November, the home went back up for sale, listed at $3.9 million. It was being marketed as build to suit. The two large areas at the back of the home, those sports areas and the pool, well, they were nearly finished, but the seven bedrooms and the nine bathrooms and the theater room and the massive basement were yet to be completed. And the Dixon family had used the home recently for a family holiday party, even though the structure wasn't really inhabitable. All right, all of this brings us to Tuesday, the day after Christmas, where over 30 firefighters were dispatched to the home where they found 70% of the structure engulfed in flames. The fire began somewhere around 5.30 that evening, and firefighters remained on scene battling the flames until early the next morning. And then as of Thursday, two days after the blaze, hot spots were still being located and extinguished. Fire investigators said the blaze spread so quickly due to all of the exposed wood that wasn't traditionally protected by sheetrock. Also, there were piles of lumber that acted as large fuel sources once they were ignited. Well, the investigators say that everything above ground, 
it's a total loss, but that the cement structure of the basement could likely be salvaged. So it was taking 10 years to build this mansion. Why? Well, the city of Orem officials say the contractors and property owners were having difficulties in bringing the project into compliance with current building codes. It seems the contractor wasn't following the originally approved building plans. So a non-compliance order was filed against the owners and the project managers. And you guys, that was just one holdup. Also, there were other holdups because they were bouncing the ownership between Tom Sr. and then his wife and then the LLC and then Tom Jr. And this caused delays as well. Well, the city has also received complaints about the construction site and the length of time to complete the build. Officials say they worked with the owners to address the timeline, but not much progress was made. Well, now the ATF has joined the investigation into what started the blaze. And according to KUTV, having the ATF involved means that at the very least, authorities believe a federal crime has occurred. All indications are they believe it at least has the potential to be an arson. It has been reported that canine units were brought in to sniff out accelerants. And the owner of the property that lies directly adjacent to the unfinished mansion? Well, she said that despite it never being inhabited, that activity was always happening at the property. She said random strangers would wander the property just because it was such a spectacle. She also said they heard commotion on the night of the fire just before the flames erupted through the roof of the mansion. So what occurred? Is it insurance fraud like so many people are speculating? Is it a family dispute that was settled with arson? Is it a random fire? I'm very intrigued by this story. And if you're listening on podcast, make sure you check out the pics on the Instagram post of the house. I mean, it's phenomenal. It, this place is monstrous. You can also see the flames and the structure and all of that on the YouTube video as well. So I'll watch this one closely and I'll let you know when I find out more about the ATF investigation. Well, we've got just enough time to update you on the plea hearing for Jody Hildebrandt. All right, three episodes ago, I updated you about YouTuber Ruby Frankie, who ran the channel Eight Passengers, which chronicled her life with her husband, Kevin, and her six children. In that episode, we discussed the guilty plea of Ruby and the details about how she abused her nine-year-old daughter and her 11-year-old son. Okay, those are her two youngest children. So make sure you listen to that episode to know more about how the summer months played out for those two kids. Well, on Wednesday, the new business partner of Ruby's pled guilty to the same exact child abuse charges. Okay, remember... After public outcry led Ruby to stop filming her eight passengers channel, and also that same public outcry led to YouTube shutting down the channel because of extreme parenting patterns, Ruby and Jody Hildebrandt started another YouTube channel and a business where they would help others parent more effectively. And I can hardly say that phrase to you guys without rolling my eyes. They would also offer relationship advice for couples. But as before, all of the advice that they were offering was extreme. Jody was so extreme in her therapy practices that at one point she moved into Ruby and Kevin's marital home 
and made them live separately under the same roof. The couple was only allowed to speak to one another if approved by Jody. And this was documented by the women as an effective therapy strategy. Well, last summer, Ruby moved into Jody's St. George, Utah home, and the abuse of the two children began there. And I say it began there because there's obviously alleged abuse prior to Ruby moving into that St. George home, but the current charges, the one we're talking about today that Jody and Ruby have now both pled guilty to, well, those only pertain to the time that the children were living in Jody's home. Now, Jody's plea agreement mirrors Ruby's. She admits to causing physical injury and severe emotional harm to both children. Some of the details include restraining the 11-year-old boy and causing wounds around his wrists and ankles. When the restraints were removed, Jody appears to have rubbed cayenne pepper into the wounds that had been inflicted by the restraints. She also said that she was complicit in withholding food and water from the children and also making them perform labor in the severe hot weather of the St. George summer. Jody also admitted to indoctrinating the two children into believing they were evil and that the punishments were for their own good, specifically saying that the acts of physical harm were being done out of love. Now, both women remain incarcerated and both women will be sentenced on February 20th. Well, that's your New Year's Day episode of Rise and Crime. Again, Happy New Year, you guys. Thank you for today's case suggestions. The first two cases both came from, well, multiple listeners sent in those case suggestions. Please keep sending them in. I love the interaction. And go ahead and give us a like and a follow as well as hitting that subscribe button. Thanks for being here with me. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. Let's make 2024 an even better year than last. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.